For Desiree Barron, it all started in 2014 with a routine traffic stop and the surprise revelation that she was driving on a suspended license stemming from a shoplifting charge that had been filed during her teenage years. It changed dramatically. Like, I can't drive to get to work. I can't drive to take my daughter to Girl Scouts or do just the normal average things that you guys do. But as time went on, that license suspension went from being a simple annoyance to a serious obstacle in her life. She was unable to pursue her dream of becoming a nurse, and her time behind bars caused serious health problems because of her diabetes. And all of it seemed completely unnecessary to Desiree. Why are you going to suspend someone or put someone in jail who is doing no crime whatsoever? And these types of cases certainly aren't uncommon. Those who study the impact of fines and fees say minor charges routinely lead to economic hurdles that millions of people find impossible to clear. Here's Jessica Fireman with the Juvenile Justice Center. We were hearing stories of a family deciding, should I pay for my groceries or should I pay this court fee? I'm David Abair, and on this episode of Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, the high price of using fines and fees in America's criminal justice system. So now, here's Laura Arnold with our latest Deep Dive Conversation. I'm thrilled to be here today doing this episode on fines and fees, and I'm particularly thrilled to have with us two of the most prominent scholars and practitioners who are at the forefront of reform on this issue. Alexis Harris and Jeff Selbin, both are experts and thought leaders on issues of poverty and criminal justice. Alexis is a professor of sociology at the University of Washington. Jeff is a clinical professor of law and the founder and faculty director of the Policy Advocacy Clinic at Berkeley. Alexis, Jeff, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. Now, this is not an issue that many people know about. We're here to talk about fines and fees. So if I could, I'd like to start by clearly defining what we're talking about when we say fines and fees. Alexis, can you outline for us what they are, what the difference is between them, and why this issue caught your attention? Sure. So I refer to all of these fines, fees, surcharges, costs, assessments, and interest as monetary sanctions in general. But they, there are distinctions between the or among the different types of financial sentences that people face when they make contact with our systems of justice. So their fines are the financial penalty that is meant as a punishment. So many types of offenses that people are convicted of, from just a traffic ticket on up to attempted murder charge has a fine attached to it, a, a financial penalty. But and and the, the the point is to punish the person financially. But in addition to that fine, that punishment, are a host of other types of charges. So there are fees, there are costs that are imposed on people, surcharges, and even interest. So for example, when I get a speeding ticket or when I have gotten a speeding ticket, I'll have that that base fine on my ticket, but really the bulk of the costs are additional processing fees for that fine. So in, in Washington state, for example, there are a host of um, fines and fees that people pay. There's a mandatory victim penalty assessment of $500 per felony conviction that someone receives. We used to have interest on fines and fees, but there's still interest on restitution. So across the nation, there are a variety of different types of fines, fees, costs, surcharges, interest that are imposed on individuals. And many 
many times the, the bill increases every month because of interest and collection surcharges that are added. And in your own home state of Washington, as I understand it, the outstanding debt uh, most recently as of 2018 is something around uh, $2.5 billion, a little more than $2.5 billion. And in certain counties, the average amount of court debt owed by any defendant is something close to $5,000. So somebody could have gone through the process in the criminal justice system, have received a sentence, and in addition to that, be saddled with thousands and thousands of dollars of fees that are ongoing. What happens if you don't pay those fees? There are a great deal of consequences for individuals. You know, obviously the financial consequences. So you're in debt, you're regularly um, supposed to build and supposed to make payments to the court system or in certain jurisdictions that debt is outsourced to private collection agencies who in Washington state can add additional 50% on top of that debt. So you have a huge balloon debt that you're owed to private companies. So the financial consequences are enormous for individuals, but there are also criminal justice consequences that many people aren't aware of, uh, but make them sort of tethered. This debt tethers them to the criminal justice system for the rest of their life. So if you, for example, have an unpaid parking ticket um, and you eventually, you know, don't appear to court don't maybe you don't realize you have the ticket or you're homeless, don't have an address, eventually your license could be suspended. And if you're driving on a suspended license, you can be arrested and go to jail. So for an, essentially an unpaid parking ticket, the inability to make payment, you can be uh, incarcerated on that. Right. So it's a whole scope of punishment. It's a whole scope of punishment over and above the punishment that a court imposes that is financial in nature and that disproportionately affects people who feel the stress of, of having thousands and thousands of dollars owed in their in their lives. Right. I, I was just going to say it clearly highlights our two-tiered system of justice. One, if you have wealth and means, you're you're able to move forward with your life and pay off that debt. But if you're poor, you have a very different experience of the way that justice and that punishment feels and a, a lifelong, for many, duration of that punishment for people who are unable to pay off the debt. Mm-hmm. Jeff, you focused much of your work on juveniles. Can you tell us about how this issue impacts juveniles specifically and tell us about your work in California. Sure. Um, unfortunately, the picture in the juvenile system is a lot like the one that Alexis just described in the adult system. And I don't know if this is appropriate, but I recommend that everyone read her book, Pound of Flesh. Pound of Flesh, absolutely. I think is a terrific primer on this um, issue. I got involved in the issue in 2012 when lawyers in our community clinic said that families with uh, youth in the juvenile delinquency system were showing up with bills from the county for thousands of dollars in administrative fees. To be honest, I really didn't believe it. Um, I just um, couldn't fathom that this would be the policy. So a juvenile gets arrested and goes to juvenile detention or even goes before a judge and, again, is assessed a number of processing fees that are not assessed to the juvenile. They're assessed to the parents of the juvenile. In the case of California, most of them are charged to the parent or guardian. Um, In some states, they are charged uh, to youth. In California, they're charged for the kid's lawyer, for the detention, for probation, for electronic monitoring, for any kinds of, uh, of drug testing. And even, in fact, for the for stays in the juvenile facility. Right, in juvenile hall, for detention in juvenile hall. So a per diem charge for... That's right. That's right. And they, it could be $30 a day, for example, for every day uh, in juvenile hall. Counties also charged fees that violated state and federal law, but even when they complied with the law, the outcomes for youth and families were just terrible. The, the fees harmed 
families and undermined rehabilitation of the youth. They were regressive and racially discriminatory, falling hardest on youth of color and their families. Um, and to the surprise of many, including, including me, they yielded little net revenue for the counties. I read in some materials that a youth serving a probation sentence in Sacramento County prior to the fee repeal, so which we'll get to, could be charged $18.40 a day for each day spent in juvenile hall, more than $300 for a public defender, $24 a day for electronic monitoring, $206 a month for probation supervision, $20 for every drug test. So, so this adds up. This adds up for a family that is well, for any family, but certainly for a family that maybe has multiple children, that has um, that has income restrictions. And these fees, of course, are on top of any fine that the court imposes on sentencing, which is not unusual. That's right. And any other kind of sanction, right? So the detention itself, the probation, the electronic monitoring. Um, and the numbers you just um, cited came from research that we did across the state to try to figure out what these fees were um, and, and you know how often they were being assessed and collected. And based on those findings, we quickly began working to try to change all of this. We published the research uh, in a couple of policy reports and with local and state activists and advocates, we began pursuing a fee repeal campaign. I should say that policymakers were generally very receptive to hearing what we found. Several large counties quickly repealed fees in the face of this evidence, and the legislature eventually actually abolished fees statewide in 2017. The law ended new fee assessments in California, effective January 2018, but it's important to note that it didn't stop collection of old fees, and wait for it, the the amount that families owed in 2018 from old fees was $375 million in California, so a huge sum, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's a real question as to the likelihood that the state is going to recover any of that money because you're dealing with families that are... That's right. The vast majority of families in the system obviously uh, can't afford to pay anything. So the state winds up spending a lot of money on collection agencies, on collection efforts, on staff to keep track of these of these fees that may or may not be collected. That's exactly right. Now, a lot of these issues came into the public limelight in 2014 during the Michael Brown case in Ferguson, which is a suburb of St. Louis. We're all quite familiar with the Michael Brown case and the enormous implications to criminal justice that um, that case brought and then the attention to many injustices that that case highlighted. Alexis, tell us about Ferguson and why that was a moment of awakening for many of us with respect to this issue. Sure. Michael Brown was a African-American man who, an unarmed African-American man who was accosted by the police for jaywalking in Ferguson and was shot and killed by the Ferguson Police Department or officers. As a result of that case, the United States Department of Justice, the DOJ, went into Ferguson and and did a a substantial report to investigate the use of, in particular, fines and fees and and the ways in which the communities were being policed by the police department. And the DOJ found a pattern or practice of racial bias in both the Ferguson Police Department and the municipal courts, particularly around the imposition of fines and fees and collections. They found, quote, that the harms of Ferguson's police and court practices are born disproportionately by African-Americans and that this disproportionate impact is avoidable. 
And also the practices related to collections had intentional discrimination and demonstrated uh, direct evidence of racial bias and stereotyping about African-Americans. So this issue, the release of the, the DOJ Ferguson report, the killing of Mike Brown and the organizing in the community about state-sponsored violence highlighted the issue of monetary sanctions and the ways in which fines and fees, even for jaywalking, can lead to the death of people in certain communities and then definitely leads to large amounts of debt disproportionately borne by people of color in the United States. Now, in 2013 alone, based on the data that came out of the Ferguson studies, uh, we now know that the court issued over 9,000 warrants on cases that stemmed in large part from minor violations like parking infractions or traffic tickets, housing code violations, violations that typically wouldn't implicate any jail time. But the municipal court in Ferguson routinely issued warrants for people to be arrested and incarcerated if they didn't pay the fines and fees relating to these kinds of things. So it really highlights uh, for me as, as somebody who's not in the weeds on this but, but cares a lot about this issue, the fact that this touches real people and that it has some serious consequences on, on people's lives. Right. This, and this is why I frame it as a system. It's a system of monetary sanctions, of imposing debt on already sort of financially strapped individuals. It's a system of social control of marginalized, racialized communities of color. And it leads to individual consequences. So the economic consequences that we talked about and the criminal justice consequences. But it also leads to severe distrust in communities of color towards the police. It, it delegitimates the authority of the police if they're there to police for profit and and if they're there to check to see if you owe debt. Let's talk a bit about what we know or suspect about the impact that fines and fees have on low-income individuals beyond a jail sentence. Alexis, you talked a bit about uh, this at the beginning of our conversation, but talk a bit, and this is a question to both of you, about what concerns you about a system that relies so heavily on fines and fees. Well, it really clearly highlights on so many different levels the two-tiered system of justice that we have in the United States and how poor people and disproportionately people of color are controlled by the criminal justice system. First, in terms of arrests and disproportionate arrest rates, conviction rates and incarceration rates. But on top of that, then communities that are poor and uh, disproportionately people of color face this lifelong permanent, what I call a permanent punishment to carry this debt. And so it, it creates difficulties if we think about families, for people making choices between getting birthday presents or birthday cake for their kids to people that I've interviewed had full-blown AIDS. Um, and one man said, you know, I'm going to make a choice between buying a prescription or healthy food or paying this debt. Another man was a homeless man who said, you know, if I have an extra $3.50, I'm going to go downtown and at the hygiene facility and take a shower. So these are the choices that people are, are forced to make because for some reason our court systems think that it makes logical sense to a, uh, transfer the cost of processing, criminal justice processing on the backs of the people who go through the courts. Now, there is, of course, a, an argument that many people make that this should be a user pay system. That if you are entering the criminal justice system, if you get a traffic ticket, if you get a, if you get if you litter, you are imposing a cost on society, and there is a cost to deal with you. So you should you should pay. So if I don't if I don't get in trouble with the law, then I'm not using the system, and so I shouldn't. So so I'm not paying. What is your answer to that rationale? 
logically it makes sense from your boardroom or from your, you know, wherever you're making policy. But on the ground, looking at the numbers, it doesn't pan out. And it's, it's, um, it's unethical. It's ineffective. It's inefficient. I mean, there's so many words to use to describe this system um, that we really need to stop and reassess and figure out how can we make society safer? How can we save public dollars? And how can we help support people who have made mistakes Serve their punishment. I'm not saying people shouldn't be punished, but serve their punishment, be accountable, and then move forward with four productive lives. It's hard to add anything to what Alexis Harris has to say, but I do think at a fundamental level, your question forces us to grapple with who owns the justice system, the one that Alexis just described. Um, If you believe, as I do, that we all depend on and benefit from the justice system, it needs to be well-run and well-resourced, then we should all pay for it. A user-funded system, even from people who could afford to pay for it, creates incentives for government access and abuse in pursuit of revenue. And I think we've seen that. I think fines and fees have been in part a driver of mass criminalization. They're not just a symptom of it. Um, Listen, I live in one of the bluest counties in the arguably bluest state in the country, and our local officials during the Great Recession increased juvenile fees tenfold. Um, That increase has nothing to do with accountability um, or any other kind of legitimate public policy aim. It was all about trying to generate revenue. (laughs) So is your position that you shouldn't have to pay fees even if you can afford to pay them? Mine is. um, There's no question about it. Again, I think it just incentivizes government to to net widen, to over-police, over-prosecute, and over-punish people. Alexis, I don't know what your view is on that. So I think, so, you know, when you talk with judges, they'll push back and policymakers and say, well, you know, you don't want us to incarcerate. So what do we do with lower level offending? And I really think that when I think that we can have a graduated monetary sanction system. So many people refer to this as day fines. And so essentially what it is, is that you have an offense and that offense will have a score one through 20 maybe. And it goes rises in severity of the offense. Um, And then the individual has another number attached to them, and that's their average daily wage. And what the courts can do is multiply the offense score with the average daily wage. And that produces a financial amount or that fiscal amount. And that amount is proportionate to the offense, the severity of the offense, but also proportionate to what the offender can pay. And so, you know, I always use the example of Bill Gates, who lives across the lake in in Seattle. Um, So what he gets charged for a certain offense is, and what I get charged are different amounts, but in terms of the proportion to what I can pay, it's a fair amount. And so that's a way that we can look at imposing fiscal penalties and not incarcerating people, but make the financial amount payable for the individual that receives it. So now we've established that the fines and and fees can have these dire consequences on impoverished individuals, communities of color. Let's talk about public finance. Do they make sense from a public finance standpoint? What do we know about how collection of these fines and fees actually work? Right. So as I alluded to earlier, we we look very closely at this particular issue in California, and we were surprised to learn that fee assessment and collection costs often approached or exceeded revenue. That is, um, some some counties were making little or no 
money. Prior to fee abolition, we have good data from a set of large counties that suggested, for example, that 70 to 80 cents of every dollar in revenue was spent on assessment and collection. So that's a pretty low return, even on the, the amounts that are coming in. In the year that it uh, before it ended, assessment and collection, for example, San Jose, Santa Clara County, actually spent $450,000 to collect $400,000. That's obviously bad public policy from a um, from a public finance perspective. And Orange County spent close to $2 million and employed 23 people to collect around $2 million in juvenile administrative fees, and they netted about $400,000. Right. So there's a case of 80, 85 percent, you know, 80 or 80 cents on every dollar being spent. Um, but we also found that counties weren't even aware that they were generating little or no revenue until we started asking the question. Um, the costs of collections are frequently borne by a separate department from the department that actually receives the revenue. So the department that receives the revenue, for example, the probation department, thinks it's all net revenue. The collection department may be the one that's chasing people who can't uh, afford to pay. So um, I think that's a big problem that needs to be fixed uh, at the local uh, at the local level. And even in some cases, surely there are counties that do net significant positive amounts on fines and fees. But even then, we still have the issue that we're creating instability and harm to many at-risk communities independent of whether or not this is a good revenue generator for counties. I think that's a really important point, by the way, that even if this makes money, it doesn't mean it's good uh, public policy. And, And at least so far in California, and our research is underway on this particular piece after fee repeal, it doesn't look like there's been a single job loss or program cut due to fee repeal. Well, tell us, Jeff, about uh, what the city of San Francisco did, uh, how they approached this issue, and what they have found as a consequence. Well, San Francisco, it's really cool, (laughs) actually. San Francisco became, in 2016, the first city in the country to launch a project to evaluate fines and fees. And they actually located the financial, it's called the Financial Justice Project. It's located within the city treasurer's office, and it's been laser-focused on this issue. Even before this project was created, San Francisco was the only jurisdiction in California that didn't charge a juvenile fee, so I would say officials were already pretty attuned uh, to this issue. But within a very short amount of time, the project persuaded the Board of Supervisors to end administrative fees, not just on the juvenile side, but on the adult side. And these were, again, the same kind of fees that Alexis has been talking about, fees for probation ankle monitoring, drug testing. It's a long list. The board went beyond just ending the assessment, excuse me. The board also discharged more than $32 million in outstanding fees, making it the first jurisdiction to both end assessment and collection of both of these. It has set off what we hope is a positive cascade in counties. Alameda County followed shortly thereafter discharged about $40 million. There are two or three other counties right now actively, large counties actively looking at this. And there's now a state, uh, a bill in the state legislature that's pending that would take this reform statewide. So we have spent a lot of time outlining why the system is broken, and it is broken in many, many ways, some of which we actually haven't even addressed. But We've covered that it has adverse impacts and the existing system for lots of reasons doesn't make sense. But let's talk about solutions. So this is a question for both of you. Can you talk about what solutions you propose as a starting point to address these issues? Um, so, you know, based on the 10 years that I've been doing research, is I, I firmly believe that we don't need to impose any monetary sanctions for felonies, that people have a host of punishments that they face within the system in terms of incarceration and, and 
electronic home monitoring and probation. But in addition, they have a host of collateral consequences that they face having that, that felony conviction. So we also need to ensure that there are our ability to pay hearings and state legislatures need to change laws uh, that mandate judges perform the ability to pay to determine whether or not this person has a current financial ability to make payments. We need to establish formal community service alternatives for individuals where people can perform community service in lieu of, of financial debt. We need to decouple loss of driver's license and voting rights from unpaid debt. We need to allow people to be productive citizens. They need to drive to get to the job so that they can make payments on their debt. Um, we want them to be part of our communities. We want them to be voting and, and actively engaged in local politics and national politics. We need, as Jeff mentioned, we need to discharge uncollectible debt. Um, having millions of folks in our country carrying around debt that they can never pay is not productive for their individuals, for families, for communities, and for public safety. Um, and the big, big chunk of this is we really need to address court funding and expenditures. We need state legislatures to fund the courts. Our court systems are a public good, and, and our taxes should pay for the public good. And I just want to drive home the, the driver's license point, which I think is a very important one. Around 43 U.S. states and Washington, D.C. allow license suspensions because of unpaid court debt, which means that you can have your license revoked or suspended uh, if you haven't paid any of these fees that we're talking about. And 40 states do that without an ability to pay hearing, which I think is, a, is, is something that we all should focus on in terms of in, in terms of thinking long term about what what the purposes of these of the fees and of fines and how they should play a constructive role in our criminal justice system, and this is an issue that uh, has attracted us to Ventures not only because, of course, it's an issue of enormous social policy relevance, but also because we feel that there is a a window of opportunity for bipartisan consensus. Can you talk a bit about where you're seeing these windows of opportunity? if anywhere, and what you foresee as um, potential policy wins in the near future. Jeff, you want to start? Sure, sure. Um, Actually, well, let me start by saying that thanks to a path-breaking report by the Juvenile Law Center that I think you all supported, Mm -hmm. we now know that almost every state authorizes juvenile fees. And fortunately, as you've just suggested, reform is afoot with your support and with the Juvenile Law Center and others. We're actually on the verge of launching a campaign nationally to end and juvenile fines and fees. Um, and yes, I think there are a lot of signs that bipartisan support is not only possible but happening. There are obviously conservative groups like Right on Crime and liberal groups like the ACLU that are concerned both about the harmed individuals and families, but also about government abuse or overreach in pursuit of revenue. Um, in the last two years, national nonpartisan bodies of lawyers, judges, legislators, court administrators um, have all issued formal calls to reduce or eliminate fines and fees in the justice system. In the states that we've worked in, we've seen very little opposition from either side of the aisle once policymakers are presented with the with the facts. So it's really a lack of awareness. People don't understand how the system works and how it touches these individuals. I think it's right. It's grown up over several decades. In the case of juvenile fees in California, for example, they were first authorized in the 1960s. Ones were added in the 80s and 90s. Um, and again, in the 2000s, Uh, During the Great Recession, counties increased the amounts. They've grown up through accretion, and no one's been really paying attention to how harmful they are 
and how bad they are as a, as a form of public policy. I will say California, the fee repeal bill in California passed with bipartisan support. There's a bill in the Nevada legislature right now that has cleared the full assembly and the Senate Judiciary Committee as of a few days ago without a single vote in opposition. So I think, again, when, when presented with the evidence, policymakers are apt to, to move on these issues. And I do think that awareness has increased dramatically in the last few years, thanks uh, in large part to the work of the two of you, the work of the Fines and Fees Justice Center and the the Juvenile Justice Center. There are many actors now that are focused on this issue, which seems to be low-hanging fruit for people who want to reform the criminal justice system, do right by kids, and help people embark on a path to a more sustainable life. So so we are looking forward to the policy wins of these organizations. I'm very grateful to both of you for being with us today, and I thank you for your work. Thank you for being on Deep Dive. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, an issues-based podcast produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit their website at arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks again for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again next time on Deep Dive with Laura Arnold.